irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can reach out to me through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. Through my website, you're able to schedule sessions with me in person in Los Angeles or New Orleans. Additionally, I do Skype, phone, and FaceTime sessions worldwide. Please inquire if you're interested in being a guest on this show. You're able to access archived episodes of this show and subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and YouTube. And if you're moved, I would appreciate you supporting my work and this show through my crowdfunding campaign with Patreon.com. There's a link on NOLA Therapy as well as through Patreon with just forward slash Lisa Ta here. And today's show is brought to you by Audible. They have over 180,000 titles for you to choose from. And as my sponsor, they offer you as a listener a free month subscription as, as well as an audiobook download of your choice. To access that, you simply go to audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. And just a few moments, I am going to be bringing on my guest today. Today, I am speaking to Katie Hill. She is running for Congress in California's 25th District to unseat Republican incumbent Steve Knight. Katie has been executive director and deputy CEO of a $40 million a year nonprofit named PATH, People Assisting the Homeless. It's a statewide organization that has provided homeless service services and develops housing. These are two of the biggest issues that are facing Angelinos in this election. She grew up and resides in the 25th con- Congressional District, so she has a unique understanding of the district that she wants to serve. It's composed of a large population of veterans, another issue that ties into what we'll be talking today around homelessness and health care. A lot of residents of her district are LAPD. And her father served in the Air Force and then was a police officer. Both her grandfathers served in the armed forces, and her mother and grandmother were both registered nurses. So I want to bring in some of the, the personal today. We're going to talk about the big issues, which are the Republican tax plan, health care, the housing shortage, with which in the state of California, we are one million housing units short of the population. We're going to discuss men abusing power the sexual harassment epidemic, and common gun safety laws. And I wanted to share to my listeners that I am coming to you today, and and I do each week as a healer, as a therapist, with over a 20-year knowledge base of the individual and context of our psychosocial, spiritual aspects of our lives. And I really wanted to expand my knowledge base into the political because of today's times, and I kind of lagged behind in this area. So I encourage any listener that might feel intimidated by the world of politics and government to reach out. I asked for help from a friend, Stephanie Keefe, who worked for Senator Daschle. Uh, He was a Democratic senator from South Dakota, and I've been educating myself and reading. So just I encourage you as the listener, it's an important time in our culture that we change the climate. There's increased intolerance, discrimination, and violence, and it's through supporting candidates that you believe in their platform so they can represent our ideas, they can be our voice to share our opinions through legislation. And for these reasons, I am really honored to interview Katie Hill. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. How are you today? I'm doing great. Awesome. Excited to be here. Thank you. Me too. You know, Katie, I wanted to start with just a really simple question for you, if if sure. you would be so kind, is why are you running for Congress and what makes you the <laughs> candidate that we should vote for? Sure. So I think that that's 
it's uh, that's always a hard answer for yeah. me uh, in terms of why I'm running because there's so many reasons. It started with, you know, I'd been dedicating my career to fighting for the most vulnerable people in our communities. And uh, we had some major wins last year. Or, well, in 2016, we were able to develop and pass Prop HHH, which here in L.A. was a huge legislative accomplishment, uh, providing a, a tremendous amount of resources for us to build affordable and permanent supportive housing to really address the issue of homelessness. And then we also got a measure, measure H on the ballot at the LA County level. And we're fighting for that from November through March of 2017 to get uh, resources to actually fund the services around home, you know, to address homelessness and that we passed as well. So, you know, we were, we were able to get these local initiatives passed um, and, but recognize that, you know, as, as much as we can do here locally, no matter what, um, if we can't get the right partners in place at the federal level, then our work is going to be very limited and we're never going to be able to come up with the systemic solutions that are needed to address the root causes of homelessness and make everybody's lives better overall. Uh, so I ended up finding out that my district was key in us being able to flip the house next year. And this is the district that I spent my entire life in. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, that a big part of the reason that Hillary won the district by seven points, but the Democratic challenger last time lost it by a significant margin was that he was not from the district. He moved to our area in order to run and he just didn't really resonate with our community. So um, I found out that, you know, there were a lot of different groups that were looking for somebody who was local, who had the right experience and um, and the ability to run a competitive campaign to fundraise en enough money to be uh, competitive against the Republican, you know, super PACs and, uh, and dark money that's coming in. Um, and so I decided, you know what, if this is where I can have the biggest impact, then it's time for me to step up. But that was also 10 days after the Women's March. Yeah. And last year that I first really started thinking about it. And I, I can't help but um, recognize the significance of that. I think there were so many women, you know, who we saw women standing up in a way that we haven't certainly in my lifetime saying, this is enough, We're, this is time for us to be able to make a change, and we have something to add to this conversation, um, and it's time for us to, to be able to, to be a voice. So, you know, I think that's part of it, too, and, and really, frankly, just that our political system is so broken right now, as evidenced by what's happening in Washington, how our government just shut down because we can't pass one of the most widely uh, popular provisions of, you know, DACA, which is, is so many people agree on that, that happening, but for some reason it's got to be tied to government spending. And um, it's just, it's ridiculous that we're here. It's ridiculous that we've got the president that we've got and that we, you know, can't get anything accomplished. We've got uh, politicians who are accountable to special interests, to their party leadership and not to the people they're supposed to be serving. And when push comes to shove, that has to change. And I think the solution for that is real people who truly represent their communities, who have been through the challenges that most Americans face every single day um, and who are going to be uh, uh, trustworthy and um, committed to, to the people. You know, you've, you've just said so many important things very well encapsulated. I want to highlight a few of them for our, for our listening audience, uh, that Los Angeles is home to nearly half of the country's homeless population. There are about 58,000 homeless people on the streets, and you were instrumental in developing and passing Proposition HHH and Measure H, which uh, releases $1.2 billion in city bonds to build 10,000 units of housing. And I know some people in Los Angeles are wondering how that can be expedited. I know there was a groundbreaking mm -hmm. in 2017 in um, Silver Lake, and I wonder how you could help yeah. from Congress to just really kind of move this along um, for our community? Yeah. So actually, that's a that's an important question because the basically the Republican tax plan did major damage to one of the most critical funding sources for affordable housing. It's the tax credit program, uh, the affordable housing tax credit program, that basically companies would buy tax credits that would go towards developing affordable housing and the value of those tax credits have gone down dramatically now because the corporate tax rate has been lowered by so much. So we're looking at just massive cuts to how much is going to be available through this, through that program. And that was the most reliable, most consistent, and really bipartisan um, funding mechanisms for any kind of affordable housing development. So there are a lot of unknowns right now. So 
basically when Prop HHH was passed, you, you, we freed up a lot of local resources, but those are always meant to be leveraged with other resources. Otherwise, you're just not going to get very far. Okay. And because housing is incredibly expensive to develop, especially in a place like LA where land itself is so expensive and just the, the costs of actual uh, construction and everything like that. Um, so we, you know, with, without these affordable housing tax credits at the levels that they were before, it's going to slow down construction even more. It's mm-hmm. going to make it so that we can't do as much with what we have. And it's a real concern. So we need to be able to find ways at the federal level of providing resources that can be leveraged with local and state resources. The state of California has just passed a variety of different um, measures that are going to help with affordable housing development. There's going to be another one that's getting onto the ballot for November, most likely. And all of those are going to be key. Um, and so we're stepping up right here in L.A. We're stepping up with, with everything that we can. And in California, we're stepping up. But the, at the federal level, it's getting worse. And um, we've got to change that. We have to ensure that there are housing subsidies through the Housing Choice Voucher Program. We've got to ensure that we are providing tax credits or, or uh, if those aren't going to be in place anymore because of what happened with the tax plan, then we've got to find an alternative for it. Um, and in terms of expediting, a lot of that happens at the state and local levels. And there are different things that are uh, the agencies and, and our elected officials are, are working on to try and make that happen faster. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of regulation type things that can be can be you know looked at in terms of how we approve things. And but to be honest with you, one of the biggest challenges in terms of how fa- how long it takes for an affordable housing project to get approved has to do with nimbyism and that's people who say yeah i'd love to have more housing for homeless oh, people but not right. here not in my yes. backyard I wondered um, about that. and then oh go ahead yeah i wondered about that issue that you're bringing up about nimbyism yeah yeah so i mean that's that's the reality and that's definitely something we're facing in la some of the projects that that could have been started uh and funded through prop hhh are already experiencing that and elected officials who we're supportive of HHH when push comes to shove. They've got to also stand behind the people who are trying to make those projects happen and say, look, it's got to happen where it can and when it can. And we all need to find ways of supporting this and, um, you know, sh- show that it's an asset to the community, not, you know, not a, a something that people need to be afraid of in their neighborhood. Absolutely. So and you brought up the Republican tax plan and there were two mm-hmm. questions I had just one curiosity about what what it means for the middle class and then what this means for charities. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the, the the charitable piece first. Uh nonprofits are very much dependent on tax or tax deductible contributions but from individuals and and from corporations and if uh, you know if these tax rates change, um, which, I mean, I guess they are, then it, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of how the organizations are going to be impacted, how private giving is going to be impacted. People just aren't going to, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it's very true that one of the big reasons that nonprofits get a lot of donations at the end of the year is because they people are meeting with their tax advisors mm-hmm. and their financial advisors, at wealthy individuals in particular, and they, they, they say, you need to, you need to, give away $20,000 or however many thousand dollars to drop you into the next, into the, the tax bracket below or to make up for such and such. And, um, that's something that, you know, we're now that, that the, the tax brackets have been changed, we're just not going to see as much of. Um, and then also, you know, there's, there are provisions that are, um, that are going to be making it so that, po- that it, it's possible that, um, that, uh, nonprofits, that the nonprofit designation can be extended to churches that to to allow nonprofits to engage in political activity, and that's oh. something that nonprofits, a lot of nonprofits that are concerned about because we've always tried to stay out of it, right? Like it, it's not an advantage for us to be involved politically. It's actually one of the reasons I stepped down from the organization when I did, is because uh, you know the nonprofit should be able to focus on the work and not get involved in politics. But now uh, now that that provision's changing means that basically large amounts of money can be funneled through nonprofits to engage in political activity. It can tarnish the work that real organizations are doing on the ground in terms of actually um, accomplishing good good things that need to happen for our communities because 
uh, people who have means and want to influence our politics can give instead to a church or to an organization that is really about influencing politics, which are not political contributions. They're not normally tax deductible. Um, and then they'll be able to get these tax deductions. So there's a, it's a whole mess of things yeah. around um, around how it's going to impact nonprofits. There are a ton of unknowns. It's a scary time for anybody in the nonprofit sector. And it's it's something that we should all be paying attention to. Absolutely. Um, oh, go ahead. Absolutely. I'm just agreeing. Yeah. Uh, and then the, remind me of the second part of your question. About the, oh, how, the, the middle class. And the middle class, yes. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is that we, you know, there may be some, some very short-term uh, benefits to people that they're going to see in their paychecks, right? Where, where you know, uh, because of the, the change in the tax bracket, some people in the middle class might see a slight change in their paycheck to go up a little bit this year. But it's not, um, it's not going to be a lasting change, and it's not something that's going to add up to more than a few hundred dollars a year, whereas these huge corporations are getting massive deductions um, that, are, that are permanent. And so it basically is just, it's, it's a completely misleading selling point that the GOP has been using to say that it's a tax cut for the middle class um, when it's not. It's really about, it's, it's not enough of a tax cut to actually give people the opportunity to, you know, let's just say invest in something that their family needs or, you know, uh, to really impact their lives in a meaningful way. Uh, but it is giving these huge tax cuts to corporations that we know from decades now uh, that trickle down economics doesn't work, no. but that doesn't necessarily create more jobs. In many cases, it doesn't create any more jobs for, co- for companies. Um, but instead, it, it, and, and if it does create jobs, they're certainly not, you know, decent paying jobs for the most part. They're low wage jobs um, and companies' profits go up. It, it goes on to shareholders and to, you know, the board members and, um, and CEOs and executives, and, but not to the workers. And so a tax plan that when you're talking about massive tax overhaul, we had an opportunity to really focus on how can we get more money into the hands of working people and how can we really lift up people who are, who, you know, working families and, and lift up the middle class. And instead we gave almost all of the benefits to the wealthiest people in our country and to these giant corporations uh, with no mandate, with no requirement that that actually moves into the hands of, you know, the vast majority of Americans. So, um, you know, I think that that's really what it's, it's almost a philosophical thing more than anything. Um, we pretty much walked away with nothing as, as if you're part of the middle class and you, you just got nothing out of it. And, um, we're going to have to be dealing with the consequences of that when we have new people in Congress and hopefully we flip the house this year yes. and can start to kind of, uh, fix some of those problems. Absolutely. Katie, you also brought up the important piece around DACA and, Again, 45% of DACA participants live in the state of California. And I was curious about if the Justice Department begins uh, threatening coming down on sanctuary cities like Los Angeles. I know at the Women's March last weekend, Mayor Eric Garcetti spoke out about that and saying we will continue to be a sanctuary city and and protect, uh, we'll be fighting for the Constitution. Can you just speak to us about about that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is going to could very well turn into a, a critical battle where California and places like Los Angeles and places that, you know, we recognize that, that immigrants are such a key part of our community and they're, they are our friends, our family members, our neighbors. Um, they're people who have been, who have been contributing to the fabric of our community in so many ways for so many years and in many cases, entire lifetime. Um, and we're not, we're not going to give that up and we're not going to have people be deported to a country that in many cases they've, they they have no living memory of um, because of what what boils down to racism and scapegoating yes. um, uh, for you know problems that frankly just should never ever be blamed on um, on any group in you know group of individuals. So I think you know if, as a, as a member of Congress, I would one hundred percent be you know hugely involved in making sure that we not only have a permanent fix to DACA, <laughs> but have real immigration reform that uh, that provides a pathway to citizenship for anybody who's who you know, no matter what age they came here um who is you know working and contributing to, to society and who is who wants to be part of this country and is um you know following the laws and uh, and trying to do their best for their families that to me is what we're about and that's how everybody really uh, came to America in some way or another. Um, and 
we have to honor that. And, and I think that we need to have a solution that really gets us there at the same time, you know, recognizing that we need, we need sustainable immigration policies moving forward. I couldn't agree more. And when I was preparing and speaking to my colleague, Stephanie, who worked for Senator Daschle um, in, in New Orleans, I'm a native of New Orleans, born and raised there. And when Hurricane Katrina destroyed my city, it was the Hispanic population that came and rebuilt us. It was church groups and other people from around the country that came and helped us because the federal government lagged so far behind. And right. and I remember my father had a Hispanic worker. He would pick up six days a week for two years and would rebuild. He rebuilt my father's house with his friends. And one day wow. he was just deported. And he was working harder than most people I know that, that are citizens. Oh, yeah. And so this is just such a problem that needs to be addressed in a, in a way mm-hmm. with other options besides mm-hmm. people just being sent back when they are contributing members to our society, making it better. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's one of those really, really sad examples of, of you, you can, you can, you can group people into this kind of concept of the other. And uh, I think that's much harder for people living in places, diverse places like LA um, where, you know, you, you can't see it quite that way, right? We, if we, these are people that we live with, work with, and, you know, take our kids to school with every single day. Um, it's, it's much harder, I think, to see them as, you know, as, as an other that we should be blaming for, you know, taking jobs away or for living off of, I don't know, taxpayers resources which is 100% not true so I and I think that it's really fear of a changing economy fear of a changing just social fabric that is kind of driving a lot of this narrative that's mainly coming from places that are predominantly white and haven't necessarily seen this this kind of um, diversity that we've had in Los Angeles and other places for a long time uh, and Donald Trump and the Republican Party has fed off of that fear and it's something that we really have to combat at every level. Yes. And so the other another big issue that you have a strong stance on and, and I love it is health care and, and our right mm-hmm. as a human right to have universal health care. And Steve Knight mm-hmm. voted against universal health care. Can you talk to right. us about that? Some of your beliefs and your platforms and things that you were going to do in that area. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons that so important to me and is that I have a very personal connection to it. My husband's uh, lung spontaneously collapsed uh, during a brief period when he didn't have insurance. This was in 2010 after the ACA had passed, but it hadn't taken effect yet. So it was during a time when he didn't have, uh, he couldn't qualify for his employer-based plan yet because he hadn't worked there long enough. And um, he couldn't get private insurance because he had asthma as a kid. And so he had the pre-existing condition and it was way too expensive to try and get something uh, on the private market. And so, you know, he's 26 years old, young and healthy. And we thought, well, we'll be, we'll be careful until we, until our wedding, which was coming up and he could get on my insurance, uh, which I think was better than, than his company's plan anyway. But, um, he, in the day of our, of my bridal shower, his lung collapsed and, um, we waited quite a while before even going in, hoping it was something not so serious. Um, because you know, we knew we couldn't afford whatever, even just a basic doctor's visit without insurance. And, um, and finally ended up going into like a free clinic, got an x-ray. They said your, your lungs hundred percent collapsed. He ended up going to the emergency room, had emergency surgery, was in the hospital for 11 days. And, uh, we came out with, uh, over $200,000 in debt and medical debt and had to postpone our wedding and move back in with his parents. So the whole thing was just, you know, we were lucky because we had those family supports. We, didn't have any assets that we could lose due to medical bankruptcy. Um, but we, you know, people should never go through that and it shouldn't, he should never have had to wait. He may not have had to have that kind of emergency surgery if he hadn't waited for three or four days before going into the doctor in the first place. Um, and you know, I think that that's a perfect example of people wait to get cancer screenings. And then by the time they find out that they have cancer, it's stage four and it's, it's too late for major, um, you know, for the treatment that could have saved their life if they'd gone in when they should have. And it's just because they, they know that they can't afford it. Or, and even people with insurance, sometimes it's because their deductibles are too high. Um, we, as a country, you know, this is the wealthiest country in the world. And it is absolutely 
essential that we get to a place where every single American has coverage and doesn't have to make a choice between feeding their family or putting a roof over their heads and getting the health care they deserve. So that's kind of where I'm coming from on it. Um, at the same time, you know, I think, I think because I've worked on, uh, on the front lines of, you know, seeing people experiencing homelessness who were never covered previously until the Affordable Care Act and until the Medicaid expansion here in California, we, I worked on that too. Um, and that got 13.5 million people covered through the, through the Medicaid expansion, including single adults for the first time that, um, and many of whom were people experiencing homelessness. So my organization was very involved in helping to uh, enroll those individuals, get them connected with a primary care physician, advise the county and manage care plans on how best to do that outreach. And, and, um, and so, you know, we, we were, I, I have a, a much more kind of involved sense of healthcare policy and implementation than I think most members of Congress do so I know I know what it's going to take for us to make a massive change to our healthcare policy um, to our healthcare system again for example to get us to Medicare for all mm-hmm. um, which I think is is where we need to where we need to go so uh, I think that that's where I bring some expertise some perspective that just isn't currently represented in government at all um, and I look forward to you know really being able to add that to the conversation as we move towards the the right solution the one that we need so that nobody's making those choices. Yes, and going back to your personal story with your now husband, Kenny, and when you were engaged, he was a healthy guy, a rock climber, and I can see how mm-hmm. he would wait to, like most of us, even myself with healthcare, it just is such a pain sometime to engage mm-hmm. in the healthcare system because even with insurance, sometimes the costs are high, the deductible is high, things aren't covered until yep. you're at thousands of dollars. So. Wow, I'm I'm so glad you and Kenny could navigate that because two hundred thousand dollars is a major, major ex- unexpected expense. So your oh yeah, it's been back for a long time. Yeah, yes, and you know, as as a healthcare provider, I when the Affordable Care Act first came into existence, I had um, I've never really talked about this openly, but my my pay from insurance companies was cut. And I was like, whoa. Mm. And, and my first knee-jerk reaction is like, this is terrible. And then as time went right. on, I thought, but you know, it's not terrible. And I'm willing to, I have options. I can choose to not take insurance or see other clients on the mm-hmm. side. And But for people to have health care, for people, and it ties into the issues of homelessness and, and just yep. people should not be dying on our streets without any options right. to right. R- receive care. I, it's just a crime. And so yep. I, I was easily able to shift into like this is something important for our country as the richest nation to give our citizens yep absolutely i think that your your approaches shows just compassion and human empathy that we need to bring back to uh the equation with all of this because i think you know uh, the perfect example is if you saw somebody uh on the street who had been hurt was laying in the middle of the street there's no way you would just walk past that and not try to help them uh, this is the same kind of thing. We, we, as a as a society, have the obligation to help people and to ensure that they're able to um, exist in in this kind of world. And and I think that that's something that we we don't talk about enough. Is that it really boils down to humanity and caring about each other as people? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And this issue ties into you mentioned it earlier as well. Big pharma. And the role Big mm-hmm. Pharma plays in, in politics and the super PACs, mm-hmm. 69% of Americans think super PACs should be illegal, as as do mm-hmm. you. And and I'm just curious how how you could help with that, how Congress can help, what shifts could happen in this area. Oh, yeah. So, yes, uh, health care, when you talk about health care reform, one of the big reasons we haven't been successful with it is because of the influence of uh, big money in politics. And so... We, for us to, and not just healthcare reform, but in so many areas. I mean, you saw it with the tax plan. That's exactly how we were able, or how, you know, it, it ended up benefiting large corporations and wealthy individuals and not, uh, the, the middle class or working families because we're, we don't have a voice. We don't have the huge amount of resources to be able to invest in, in political, to, to give us political power. And, that, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, so, you know, I think we really have to reduce the undue influence of big money on our politics by abolishing super PACs. That's something that we could do in, in Congress. 
and stopping special interests from misinforming and misleading the public. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that would be a huge priority for me. I think that if we want a government that represents the will of the people and not special interests, we have to reform the way that we finance our campaigns so that more real Americans can actually run for political office and be the voice for their communities. Um, so I think that that should include tax rebates for small dollar donors, uh, creating public financing pathways to make it possible for, you know, people like me or, or others who are running in our communities uh, to run competitive campaigns against political insiders or, you know, the wealthy people who are able to ask all of their friends and family members to write these maxed out checks. So I think, I think it boils down to that our Congress and our elected officials should reflect all walks of life, you know, mm-hmm. firefighters, accountants, teachers, nurses, social workers, and not just millionaires and lawyers. Yes. And and bringing back up when I did some research, I really liked how um, big pharma and charging exorbitant amounts of money for drugs and medications that certain people need and that you are against mm-hmm. that and would want to see that charge limited and, and capped off in some yeah. way, shape or form. Can you talk to us some about that as well? Yeah. Yeah. Our country is one of the only ones in the world that doesn't set any kind of uh, price restrictions on pharmaceutical companies and uh that's that's one of the main areas that we need to to really really fix is that you know pricing should be based on demand and uh and on i mean sorry it's currently based on demand and they can and they can jack up the prices however much they want it but it should be based on a variety of other factors and i think the government has a role to play in ensuring that people are able to get health care coverage, even if they can't afford it. I'm sorry, um, um, pharmaceutical drugs that they need, if, even if they can't afford it. And uh, that's something that is you only really see in the United States. I think direct-to-consumer advertising is another area that we need to address. Mm. Uh, that means, you know, those television commercials that are yes. playing constantly, uh, advertising certain, you know, uh, brand-name drugs. Those should change. We're one of only, I think, two countries in the world that allows that. That jacks up the prices too, creating more demand. And um, you know, there are a lot of different ways we can we can try and approach that issue. But those are some of some of them. Absolutely. And then this also reminds me of the issue of lobbying and your stand on uh, banning former members of Congress from becoming lobbyists for five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's that. You know, you see members of Congress who immediately uh, leave their position and then become lobbyists. And we know for a fact that many of these uh, GOP members that are uh, that are retiring this year are going to go straight back and they'll be just fine because they are going to have these fat checks coming from their lobbying jobs. Uh, but I think holding office is a service to our country and it's a privilege. Uh, and those who hold office should never abuse their access to power for personal profit. So if we ba- if we you know, create this ban, then it would help clean up corruption in Washington and restore some integrity to our democratic institutions. Yes. And so I'm going to speak a manifestation for you. When you are in Congress, how will Uh you guard against lobbyists and this kind of money coming your way or being offered for the listener out there that might be curious? I mean, how does one even buffer themselves in this environment where money is in politics at this point and our culture's development? And just what are your strategies and thoughts on that? Well, it it's about running a, a truly grassroots campaign, and I and I think that we've we well we've done that so far. I said from the very beginning, this is a big part of me running. Is you know when I was talking with my family and my friends about making this life changing decision, I said the only way I'm going to do this is if I can stay true to my values and to the way that I think that this should be. And even if that means that I don't win, um, I'll I'll be able to know that I did it right and I did I did everything that I could um, to help change the system as a whole. And so. Um, for me, that's been that has meant taking no corporate money from the very beginning. Wow. Um, I got a lot of pressure, actually, even from members of Congress and definitely from my political consultants, from you know my fundraising team, who said, you know, that five thousand dollars check that you can get from a corp, uh, corporate pack is going to be a lot easier than the, you know, probably one hundred and fifty phone calls you've got to make to raise the same amount of money sometimes. Um, and so I think. And I've I've had to do that. I mean, I've had to, I've had to turn down money, and that's 
yeah, I can tell you it's not easy. It's not something that you're, you can even feel yourself thinking like, oh, well, you know, what are, what are they really going to want from me? Uh, like, you know, is this corporation a really bad corporation? But the reason I took that stance is because I think you have to draw a line in the sand saying, uh, I need people to be able to trust me. And I need people to know that no matter what a decision that I make is because that's what I believe in. And that's what I believe is best for my constituents and my community. And it's not because some corporation tried to influence me or some lobbying firm tried to influence me. Um, so, and I think the only way that you can maintain that trust is by simply saying, I'm not taking the money. Um, so that's, that's the way I'm, I'm looking at it. And we've been able to raise as much money as my, as my, uh, main democratic opponent, despite the fact that we are raising it all from individuals and it's, uh, our average donation is still around a hundred dollars, even though we've got, you know, some nice big donors now. Uh, and we have over 3,500 individual donors, which is, I think, five times the amount of any other campaign in the race. Uh, Steve Knight, the Republican incumbent, has, I believe, 50 individual donors compared to our 3,500. Wow. So it's, you know, it shows you, like, who we're accountable to are our people, are are truly, you know, the, the, the people who are funding this campaign at $5, $20, $50 at a time. I'm so glad I asked you that question because it speaks to your integrity. I didn't realize that, that you had turned down that money. And and I imagine you're mentioning uh, Brian Caforio, who is also running Mm -hmm. for the seat. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know if he's taken, if he's specifically taken corporate money or anything like that. But I do know that we have a significantly uh, larger pool of small dollar donors and, um, and yeah, that our average donation size is, is much, much smaller. And what's significant is that you have not taken that money and chosen to make those phone calls and, and do it in a different way that requires more work, yet higher integrity. Right, right. And, and that's something that's important to me. Absolutely. At the end of the day, that's, that's the only thing I can walk away with. I need to. <laughs> yes. And speaking of integrity, the issue of men abusing power and sexual harassment, I was curious about the challenges that you've had to face with sexual harassment in politics and during your yeah. campaign. Yeah, so uh, I, I haven't necessarily faced sexual harassment during the campaign, but I have definitely faced a huge amount of sexism. Okay. Um, and it literally just today I got an email from, and you would be amazed at how many women these, these things come from, but I got it from a woman saying, you know, I, I, you know, I've been supporting Brian and I, I have to tell you the reason for that is because as much as I would like to see a woman in Congress, uh, I believe that this district, you, we're just, you're never going to be able to beat Steve Knight as a woman. And it's that mentality that really comes from your one's own biases and one's own fear that is keeping us back. So it's like if we're, if, if you're going to say, Oh, I don't think a woman can beat a man, then you're the one who's stopping that from happening. Um, polling shows over and over again that that's simply not true, even in some of the most conservative districts in the country. Uh, and we have our own polling showing that I'm not only the best positioned candidate in the primary, but I'm the best positioned candidate to take on Steve Knight. I can beat him by four points, whereas my uh, Repu- or my Democratic challenger loses again by the same margin he lost by last time. So, uh, But I even had somebody who's really high up in the Democratic Party in the state of California uh, on the on the actual party side tell me the same exact thing. Say, you know, you're running a great campaign. I'm so impressed with how much money you've raised. The polling looks great. But I got to tell you, I just don't think anything but a white man can beat Steve Knight in our area. Wow. And I'm... Um, and and so that that's people will say that to your face. They'll say, "Oh, I you know, I really like Katie. She seems like a sweet girl, but I just don't know if she can stand up to Steve Knight." And I'm like, "Are you kidding?" First of all, nobody's nobody who knows me has called me a sweet girl ever. Yes. Um, but also, like that's just that's just the worst possible thing that you could say to somebody um, to a woman who's been in a leadership position, who has been uh, fighting for you know other people for my entire career. Um, what else? Let me think. Oh, I have. Can I jump in there. Really I had one, fast, Katie, to just come. that? Can I jump in really fast to just note something? Yeah, absolutely. Said, that what you brought up around these comments, I think, really highlights the different standard that there is between mm-hmm. male and female political candidates. And female candidates oh, yeah. are often judged and questioned in different ways. You not only have to be strong, but you have to be likable. And your mm-hmm. appearance is drawn into question. You're often mm-hmm. questioned more about your credentials and qualifications. Am I yep. correct? So you're having to defend oh, yourselves. Yeah. 
in ways that your male counterparts yeah. aren't. And I think it does reflect our culture of who we imagine power to be held by. And, right. and right. traditionally, it has been men. And just the importance of that changing, that our government reflects our population and our culture, and that women and women right. of color who are underserved are seen in government at the table. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned the experience being judged judged differently in terms of your experience. Uh, let's see. I have had the same kind of comments made about, well, you know, I, we need to have the, the, the most qualified candidate go up. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about qualifications. Yeah. What, what exactly does that mean? Um, neither Brian or I has held public office before. Um but I have run a $50 million organization. I have developed and passed and implemented massive legislation. Um, and he hasn't. Like, he hasn't done any of those things. He's a lawyer. That means he can read laws. But you know what? I can read laws, too. And I can also have a staff that's going to be able to help interpret those. Um, and, and I can tell you that there's not a single member of Congress that writes their own bills. So, you know, I think that there's, that, that it's just odd that you even hear that, yes. that it's like, like, where's, where is the difference in terms of uh, qualifications and how are we deciding that somebody who's, who objectively has more qualifications in actual governing and in, in what we're looking for in our leadership, um, because it's a woman is simply looked at differently. I also had, um, what, what are some of the other ones? Oh yes. I had. One time I, I did a video about uh, sexual assault on college campuses when Betsy DeVos changed those ruling, uh, those rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a video about it, and I guess I seemed frustrated because, you know, now we're rolling back protections for sexual assault victims. Um, so there clearly was something to be upset about. Yes. But I got one of my, one of my big supporters who wrote my finance director. He was one of our big, big donors. He wrote my finance director an email saying like, I just really didn't like this video. It really upset me. And my finance director was, you know, kind of freaking out because he's like, Oh, this is one of our bigger donors. He's so upset. We need him, we need him to be able to give more, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, let me call him. So I called him, talked to him for a while, finally got it out of him exactly like what he was upset about with this video. Cause he wasn't real clear. And it was, uh, he basically said, you know, I, I just, you really just looked like another angry woman in this video. Mm. And I'm like, well, I was an angry woman in this video. And, you realize how sexist that sounds, right? And he's like, well, I don't mean it like that. And I'm like, well, okay, if this were a man saying that, how would you, how, how would you look at it differently? So we had a whole conversation about it. He ended up apologizing. And I said, you know, as, uh, uh, because of that, you need to give me another $500. And he did. So oh, that's great, I think Katie. it worked out. But. You really turned it around by addressing <laughs> but, uh, what's the root kind of, what's the fear under there for him and finally getting to it. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, but but you just you just run into those kinds of things like every single day, and I think I'd been fairly uh, sheltered from that growing up in LA, growing up in a family where I never thought for a second that there was something I couldn't do because I was a girl or a woman, um, and then working in the nonprofit sector where it it is probably one of the most female dominated sectors that exists uh, in terms of leadership positions, and you know I as as passed through and I helped to hire this team. But we had, by the time I left, 80% of our senior management was, was women. So I definitely didn't have the same kind of sexism that I, until I entered the political arena. And now it's just like, whoa. So, yeah. you know, it's something I've become even more passionate about since yeah. starting to run for office. Beautiful. And I think a, another facet of that is our need to have bipartisan accountability and zero tolerance at the federal level for sexual harassment and abuse and such absolutely and absolutely that's just something we have to we have to say there's no absolutely no excuse for we have to hold our leaders especially to the highest possible standards on it we can't bend on uh you know we can't have this not as bad ism kind of mentality and you know we can't we can't give give way on it just because somebody's somebody that we might like more you know yes and you know as a healing practitioner i've worked over my the past 20 years sexual abuse trauma harassment and violence have been an area of specialty and it's so important how nowadays men committing these crimes are being prosecuted like with dr larry mm-hmm. nasser sentenced 
uh, recently yep. and Al Franken resigning because the experience of when perpetrated by sexual abuse and violence, it's so rarely the case that the perpetrator is brought to justice. And I think it helps right. heal the collective wound that we share as, as women and individuals who have been violated to see these perpetrators being held accountable and, and receiving yep. sentences. So it's, yep. it's a positive. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Good. Thank you. And it's one of the things that I've actually been frustrated with because you hear this narrative too about like, oh, well, the due process piece. And, and I'm, 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 I'm all in favor of due process. But uh, when you have nine women accusing somebody of sexual assault, there's, there's, that doesn't, that doesn't happen <laughs> when there's, where there's, you know what I mean? Like that, that kind of thing just doesn't happen if, if, uh, somebody is completely innocent and it is so hard for women to come forward. The vast, vast, vast majority of women never ever report any kind of experience right. of sexual assault uh, or harassment. And so to have people starting to come forward at all is a huge deal. And we have to really respect and, and trust the victims in a lot of ways. And I, and you know, of course that doesn't mean blind trust, but it also means that you, there, you can't approach every single victim with, this suspicion that we do right now, uh, or people will, will not be able to come forward again. That's why I mean, when, with my own experience and you may have seen that video I, where I yeah. talked about my own, yeah. um, I, I never reported it for part of the same reason. Like I, you know, am I going to people, are people going to think I must what, or that I'm, you know, the, the one that, that kind of brought this on myself or that I'm lying because I want attention or anything like that. And, and you don't, you know, I was 16, right. When that happened. And that's to have that awareness that that's, how you might be perceived and probably will be perceived is that's what you grow up with. And that's what has to change if we want this culture to change. Absolutely. I could not have said that better. <laughs> and then a, a last issue I wanted to talk to you about because it's, it's beyond important with common sense gun safety laws, the, the mm -hmm. recent school mm -hmm. shooting in Kentucky and just this epidemic of firearms. And, and can you talk to us about how you will change this from Congress? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually, my entire career was kind of sh shifted because of an experience I had working in the emergency room while going to nursing school uh, when a teenage boy was shot to death. Um, I held his hand while he took his last, last breath. And it made me realize I needed to work on the social issues in our communities as opposed to when people actually show up in the emergency room. Um, so I know firsthand from my own experience in growing up as the daughter of a police officer and an ER nurse, the devastation of gun violence. Mm. But I'm also a gun owner, and I believe strongly that, as most gun owners do, we need to implement gun safety measures that 80% of Americans agree on. That includes universal background checks so that we don't allow guns to get into the hands of suspected terrorists or domestic abusers who have much, much higher rates of, of violence not associated with necessarily even just domestic abuse. Um, we need to have waiting periods so that people in a mental health crisis don't, you know, don't uh, aren't able to get their hands on a weapon right during that crisis. Um, and I think that those are those are simply common sense. Those are yes. things that, you know, if even if you go up to ten gun owners, and I, I can pretty much guarantee you that nine of them at least would agree with those. And I've talked to people who are members of the NRA who would consider themselves Second Amendment activists that are on the same page with that. Um, we also, you know, I think we don't talk about this enough from the left, but we have to ensure that our law enforcement have the resources to address illegal gun trafficking. And what it boils down to is we have to stop letting divisive partisan politics and the influence of the gun lobby get in the way of progress on this issue. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I know. I think I think that's really what it boils down to. So we have a few minutes left. What would you like to share with our listeners that we haven't covered or in addition? Um, you know, I think, let's see, I think the, the, the things that I really want to push for is that this is a time where activism matters so much. And we're seeing Democrats uh, across the country stand up. We're seeing women stand up. We're seeing people say that this is, this is our moment, and uh, we have to we have to make that last not only through November to flip the house, but well into the future, and and really to start pushing for the systemic change that needs to happen so that we can get a government that truly is of by and for the people. That starts with right now 
helping get good candidates elected because it all starts with taking back the House. Um, my district is the closest swing district to L.A. It's the last Republican held seat in L.A. County. So it's, um, you know, I would love, we have we have so many volunteer opportunities. We're collecting ballot signatures right now. We are, uh, we're canvassing every single weekend and we have events during the week. So we need volunteers. We also need resources. You can, every single donation helps, even if it's literally $5. Um, and of course, you can <laughs> you can also donate the maximum amount, which is $2,700. But yes. uh, that's a, a pretty small number of people who can make that donation. Um, but I think that it's, it's getting involved in whatever way you can, because it, the stakes are so high right now. We, ha- we have the possibility of losing so much gain, all the gains that we've had, you know, not just since, Barack Obama became president, but you know, in the decades prior to that, all of the liberal advances, it was just the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and we are still fighting to even keep the women's right to choose. Um, so I guess my message would be get involved however you can. If you don't have time, donate money. If you don't have, if you have time, donate your time. If you don't have either, then you know, be a voice. Share, spread the message. Everybody's on social media. You can share it that way. And, uh, and this yeah. is how we're going to do it. This is our time. Katie, how can how can people get involved with your campaign and help you? What what do you need right yeah. now from us? Yeah. So so I think I think for us, this is we're now we're now uh, less than six months out from the first election, which is in June. You have California is a top two primary system, which means that there's all these people on the ballot. You got to make it to the top two in order to move into November. Um, so we have to, we basically have to raise a lot of money between now and May so that we can start doing the, uh, the TV commercials and we probably won't do a ton of TV, but mail and, and really just communicating with voters. Um, we've got a field program up now that's incredible. I'm so proud of the team that we've built here and that's where the volunteers come out. So if you, if anybody is able to come out to the district, wants to come out to the district, even phone banking, we're doing stuff outside of the district. So sign up on our website to volunteer and, you know, and again, donate, if you can donate the amount of money that you would spend on a coffee, then that's helping us. And and your website is katiehillforcongress.com, correct? Yep. And there's, yep. And we're really big on social media too. So Katie Hill for Congress on Facebook. Yes. I follow you on both and, and we'll be sending a donation. Katiehillforcongress.com for our listeners. You're welcome. Katie, thank you for being my guest. It was such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope to join you again soon. You're welcome. Wonderful. When you're in Congress, you'll have to come back on and tell us what it's like to be a Congresswoman. Definitely. (laughs) Thanks so much. You're very welcome. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That concludes our show for today. Please listen in next week as I bring you another guest. And remember that this show is sponsored by Audible. You are able to access a free month with them along with an audiobook download by accessing audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy. Thank you. And I hope everyone has a fantastic week. listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tyson.